Hello, I'm Nick, and this is the Niche Aviation Podcast. This week, I speak to Mari Graham of Skyhook. Skyhook is a niche helicopter operator based in Scotland. They specialize in underslung load lifting and use a Eurocopter Squirrel helicopter to lift heavy loads to remote areas of the UK. Skyhook also used the helicopter to help fight fires. In April last year, Skyhook helped fight a fire alongside the River Ten. This is a particularly sensitive natural habitat, and as a result, I've also included an interview with the pilot who helped fight this fire. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Mary, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. So I wondered to start if you could give me some background behind who Skyhook are and what exactly that you do. Yeah, so Skyhook Skyhook was formed in 2015 or 2014, late 2014, I think. Yeah. And basically, we're um, we're part of a construction company, which is a much bigger company called TSL Contractors. So TSL have grown from a quarry uh, on the Isle of Mull, um, basically supplying aggregates to the island, um, and grown into a construction company. That's on the west coast of Yeah, Scotland, west coast, just off Oban. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love Oban. Oban's great. Yeah, so it's just a short ferry ride over to Mull. Um, and our head office is still there in the quarry. But uh, it started from that, and TSL moved out of quarry products into um, specialist concrete and a lot of renewables work. So where where Skyhook was born was from that renewables work, which was building hydro schemes. Yeah, and it came there was a hydro scheme project on the Isle of Mull called the Benmore Hydro, and it was a a site where the environmental restrictions were very very stringent, um, and they had to return the ground. Basically, it had to look exactly the same after they'd finished as it did when they started, say for a little intake at the top and a pump house at the bottom. So the and the, the restrictions of what they could drive on the hill were so restrictive they had to fly almost everything in. I think they were allowed two low ground impact diggers and a low ground impact dumper. And that was it on the hill. So that was all the machinery they had. Wow. So we flew And that's to build a hydro dam. Uh, yeah, it's not a dam. It, it's hydro scheme. But it's, it doesn't really have a dam as, as you would think about a big hydro scheme. It's like a little intake in a river and then an underground pipe and a pump house at the bottom. Yeah. And there's loads of these all over Scotland. And there was a big push for them. And the government had um, very attractive feed-in tariffs for quite a number of years, which meant a lot of them were being, throw, being thrown in. And it's just coming to an end now, really. The the ones, the last two are in Glenetive are being sort of finished off at the moment. And I think it'll probably quieten down a bit on hydro after that just because of the, the tar- feed-in tariffs are going to go, um, which often drive these things. But um, yeah, with, with Skyhook, Andy Knight, who's our um, uh, owner, he got a price from competitor company to provide the helicopter services for, for the Benmore Hydro, which was significant. I think it was about 300, 400 hours flying to complete it. Yeah, And the price he got, at that time, there was basically only one company in Scotland who could do that. And the price he got was uh, reflective of the kind of monopoly status they had. And he, um, he he's a private pilot as well, a private helicopter pilot. So he he knows, you know, he had enough knowledge to know that that was a crazy price to be paying. Um, so instead of um, going and looking elsewhere, he just uh, decided to go out and buy his own helicopter. And Skyhook was born. That's incredible. So he went out and bought a B3 GLAR. Yeah, that's the Eurocopter B3, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Um, and uh, set up on an aerial works permit at that time and just uh, cracked on doing the work. Um, and we were, 
only an internal asset. So I started not long after that as a ground crew. I went up to Mull um, to ground crew on that job. What is the ground crew involved? So we, um, we normally have two ground crew for every lifting operation. And they basically manage the ground. They hook on the loads, they prepare the loads, fill the skips up, talk to the pilot, talk to the client. Um, so there's various various things um, that they do. It's uh, a refuel as well. That's the other thing, refuel. Yeah. Because we always, pretty much always have to take fuel with us wherever we go in a barrier. Oh, yeah. I can imagine, especially when you're flying that many. Yeah, yeah. So we, um, it's about 180 liters an hour in the B3. So we, um, we go through quite a lot of fuel. We'll be doing like a seven-hour day. Yeah. So the ground crew, but that's that's where I, I started. I went out there, did the um, ground crew job. Uh, and after that was finished, um, rather than just sort of get rid of the helicopter, Andy decided to have a go at the market, you know, because obviously there was a gap that other people would have been in his situation. Yeah. And he was right enough. There was a, a decent market for, for underslung load lifting. And that's basically all we've done really for the past four years is underslung load lifting. We've really sort of developed that. And in um, twenty. Uh, 19 we bought a second b3 so we've got two identical aircraft now and this year we've just purchased a, a twin squirrel a 355n um just because we're starting to see more of a requirement for twin engine on utility jobs where there's um either task specialist movement involved or for survey work also yeah we've started to pick up um, a fair amount of survey work through mostly scottish national heritage who do the um sort of forestry and land management stuff in scotland some of the stipulations for their survey is the need to an engine so we've just invested in that this year ah, right that's exciting so it's it's kind of it's kind of grown from there really and so from from that point then, what has there been the typical work that you guys have focused on and done? Well, underslung load lifting is our primary work. Yeah. Within that, there's all kinds of things. We did we, we started off um and stone stone bag lifting for environmental stuff. Path restoration was our kind of bread and butter. They were the first jobs we got as we came out off Mull and away from the hydro schemes. Yeah. A lot of pouring concrete. Um, pouring concrete and hydro schemes. We have buckets um, which you can pour wet concrete into that the helicopter lifts up. The ground crew open the bucket with doors at the bottom and it drops the concrete into the shutter. That's incredible. So we do a lot of that. We do, well, we did a lot of that. We still do a fair amount of that. It's it's interesting in the last... The, the Mountains and the People project, which was the big path building project, was kind of in full swing when we started, which helped us a lot. And we got a lot of work off that. So that project was just putting more paths in yeah. the mountains around Scotland. Basically building new paths and a lot of restoring or increasing the capacity for old ones, basically. Yeah. That that kind of was in full swing. And we picked up a lot of work because our the B3, our, our competitors in Scotland, our main competitors fly B2s, the B2 squirrel. The B3 is a little bit more powerful and just can lift that little bit extra. So when these guys are filling up the bags, they do it on a scree slope often on the side of the hill because they, they source the material as close as possible to the work site as they can. There's often that they want the same rock as the rock that is that hill is made of because it, it looks the same, you know, when they put it in yeah. um, rather than having rock that's a totally different color going up the hill. So it stands out as quite stark. It's often a planning stipulation. They have to have the right rock. And that when they're loading the bags, they don't obviously have a way of weighing them. You know, they have no method of checking load weights. So having a helicopter with a an increased lift capacity is just gives them a lot more 
peace of mind when they're loading, make sure they know that their their bag's going to go. Because having to rebag when you've got a helicopter there waiting is uh, is pretty stressful and obviously costly for the client. What I was actually going to ask is like, what is the typical process? How does what does a typical day look like? How does how does the actual process work? So we we basically turn up in the morning or the night before. We often position the night before to avoid getting stuck somewhere on route in uh, in weather. So we'll position the night before to site. The bags, uh, we brief with the clients. Um, often they've worked with us a lot before. Um, we tend to have the same guys pop up again and again. So we, we often have a good rapport with them. So we just give them a quick refresher brief to make sure they haven't forgotten everything we told them last time. The task specialists get flown up and dropped on the hill um, unless they can walk to the work site without a sort of undue time delay. And then we stick the line on and, and we start lifting. And essentially, you just go to the pickup site, pick up the bag that's full and fly it to the work site. Often we'll have a client representative with one of our ground crew at each end, so at the pickup site and the drop site, and the client uh, representative will just make sure that the right bag is going to the right place. Oh, right. Because we don't have to remove them again. You know? Yeah. So, but, but you said uh, last week when you were in Ireland, mm. you had 100 and, did you say 190 bags? 196, it turned out being, yeah. 196 bags, and they each had a specific spot? Yeah, yeah. Or they'll maybe have 10 in this spot. But yeah. they can be quite specific, you know, where they are allowed to put them. Oh, right. Um, and it's, again, environmental. Um, if it's in a triple SI, which is an area of special scientific interest, or a um, any other sort of restricted environmental area, they, they can't just stick them anywhere. You know, they have to be in a certain place where they're not going to have much impact. So in Ireland, they had little red flags in the ground, which were where the bags had to go. And occasionally they have a flag that was like 10 bags. So you put 10 bags in that area. But um, yeah, they're quite specific about where they need them to go. So obviously they're then, you know, the bags are full of rocks and they're going to be picking these rocks up by hand and moving them to where they need them for the path. So they can't be too far away. You know, the whole, the whole point of the helicopter is that it gets their material right to where they need it. <laughs> so it has to be, yeah, it's quite, it's quite, um, it's quite specific, the placement for bags. One of the biggest sort of problems we get with it actually is um, how steep the ground is often. And it's very hard. So you've you got to make sure the bag is, is securely sat before you release it from the helicopter. Yeah. Because if it rolls down the hill, you've got a real health and safety issue with potentially people walking up the hill below. Oh, yeah. I can um, which uh, the paths are often closed, but sometimes they only close the section we're working on. So they either divert people around or they let them through during breaks when we're not flying. But there can still be people walking below the work sites. So you've got to be really careful when you're putting loads down that um, nothing rolls off down the hill. And that's why the, where the ground crew come in. You know, they, they'll always position a bag and make sure it's safe before you let it go. I can imagine there's a big difference between being a, a normal commercial helicopter pilot and doing what you do. Is there specific underslung load training then? There is, yeah. It's called um, HESLO training, so Helicopter External Load Operations or Slung Load Operations. And that... Um, in Europe, the, the, our training in the UK is a little bit behind Europe, really. We basically have training as the operators see fit. Um, and we've put together, a sky, um, our chief pilot guy has put together a training program for HESLO. And they come in levels. So HESLO 1 is up to a 20-meter line and on lifting loads that, that can be placed without the ground crew being in a situation they can't run away. Um, like, so they, with a bag on a hill, they can back away from it if it swings a little bit in the wrong direction, you know. Heslo 2 is up to a 30 meter line. So you're just increasing the line length. Yeah. Heslo 3 is specialist operations, um, like logging, stuff like that. 
um, and Heslow 4 is the high accuracy lifting. So that is like elevated tower construction, like building phone masts. Heslow 4, we, you know, we take Heslow 4 as anything where the ground crew have no escape route, where the accuracy of the load has to be so good, you know, because if they're roped onto a mast um, and they're building it, you know, they can't run away if the load swings the wrong direction. Yeah. So that's where Heslow 4, that, that's where we see it. And sometimes we, you know, where we're putting generators in next to telecoms masts, where that's surrounded by a fence, you know, they don't have anywhere to go if that goes wrong. So that has to be um, Heslow 4 work. And I'm I'm just Heslow one at the moment because I've only just started. Um, I'll do Heslow two fairly soon, I hope. But Heslow three and four would be, you know, after probably a few hundred hours of experience at, at the least, um, before you'd have a go at that. It's really tricky stuff. That's high accuracy, high accuracy stuff. You're just as a matter of interest. How did you get into flying? Uh, so my uh, father is a helicopter pilot, so it's sort of the family trade for me. Uh. I was uh, I came to it quite late. I was going to be a farmer. I went to agricultural college, and did all that, and came home to the farm. We had a dairy farm at home. Oh, nice. Whereabouts is this? Just in Dumfries, just south of Scotland. And uh, basically, at that point, I had a kind of change of mind and uh, decided to go flying. And I, I just did it the modular modular route. Um, so I did my PPL. Um, I've done all my training with Sloan Helicopters in Sywell, who I have a, a relatives who live very locally to there. Um, so I did my PPL, went off, built hours, uh, did the exams, and uh, then CPL. And and I, since when I came out with my CPL, I've um, I've been working ops. I'd worked ops for about a year, two years after that. I did my for Skyhook. Yeah, for Skyhook. I'd been a ground crew for Skyhook before all this started. Um, so I mean, I've always been around helicopters. Whilst I was doing my air building, I ground crewed for the spraying side of Skyhook for two summers, which was really helpful because it's quite well paid job. So it helped me pay for all the flying hours. Yeah, I can imagine it's not cheap no, to pay for it yourself. It's, it's a quite a long road. <laughs> and uh, I came out of ops and I did my FI rating earlier on this year, um, and that's kind of springboarded me a bit into uh, into the lifting stuff, which I'm doing now. Did you always want to get into lifting? Then? Pretty much, yeah. Um, when I was growing up, that's what my old man did. Um, he worked for PDG um, for years doing lifting in the Lama, um, mostly, but in all kinds of types. Is that in Scotland as yeah, well? Yeah, Scotland mostly. It, essentially, it's exactly the same job I'm doing now. He did a lot of fertilizer spreading on um, forestry. That was a massive job. Back in the 90s and early 2000s, they spread a lot of fertilizer on on baby trees. Oh, really? And um, for the Forestry Commission, so that that was um, a lot of hours a year on that. That's kind of well, it's all but gone now. Um, they've sort of changed their methodologies a bit, and they they've decided that throwing tons and tons of fertilizer out of a helicopter at trees is probably not a good investment. So um, <laughs> I can imagine they've um, they've changed their mind a bit on that now. So that's gone really. They still do a little bit of it, but not much. But I grew up watching that, so that's always kind of what I wanted to do. And coming from a farm, the sort of utility in ag flying is, uh, is what interests me. That's really interesting. Um, I'd be interested to learn more about the underslung load market in the UK and the market that Skyhook operates in. Is it competitive? It is uh, a competitive market. Um, it's niche. It's not very big, as in there's, there's not a massive amount of work. There are. There's only a really in the UK about, let me think, one, two, three four or five operators who do wow. underslung load work seriously. And is it mainly focused on the remote areas of the UK, so Scotland, um, maybe Northern Ireland and Wales? Yeah, essentially. The main activity centres are the Peak District in Northern England. There's a lot of work there's there. The Highlands of Scotland and the West Coast of Scotland. 
Wales, the the, the Brecon Beacons, um, and then Northern Ireland and the Mourns, essentially. We do a little bit out in the west of Ireland um, on some of the sea cliffs. We've done work over there. Uh, Southern Ireland as well. We have worked in Southern Ireland. It's a bit of an untapped market at the moment. And um, we expect to see that grow a bit more um, in the next few years in Southern Ireland um, because they have no operator. I think they have one operator in in the West, in Galway, who can do lifting. But um, I think they have a 120 and a Dauphin. So they're not particularly well suited aircraft-wise to the kind of work we do. Uh, Why did Andy choose the aircraft that you have now? What's the specialist about it? And is there anything else that does it? There are other things that do it. Majority of operators in the UK use the 350 type, yeah. so the Squirrel. The, and the B3. Well, the B3 or the B2. Um, yeah. The There is another operator who uses a Bell. He has all Bells. He has Long Ranger uh, 205 and a 212. And obviously, they're, they're a bit heavier lift. The 205 and the 212 will lift 1,800 to 2-ton loads. And yours is 1,200, is 1,200 kilos max, yeah, with the B3. So it kind of depends on on your market, really. I mean, we we chose the B3 because at that time, there wasn't anyone else operating a B3. There was lots of people operating B2s. So it gave us a competitive advantage with the extra lift capacity. Yeah, A 205 is a very expensive piece of kit to run and not the kind of thing that can be easily sold if it, if it doesn't work out. A Squirrel is a very, it's a very versatile aircraft. It can be used for a VIP charter. It can be used for training. It can be used for a long load. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a sort of um, jack of all trades. And it's um, for work in the mountains, like what we do with this kind of work, it's, it's, I don't think there's anything really that beats it on a cost per hour to what you can actually do with it basis. It's, it's, it's probably the most efficient aircraft for the job at the moment. The E, the V3Es, the, new, the newest version, are slightly more powerful again. So they're improving all the time. But we, we'll essentially stick with the 350 type all the way through. And I think it was chosen because that is what has traditionally been used in Scotland. Um, it lifts the load capacity we want to lift. That that one ton lift is really the market in the UK. There is a market for heavy lift up beyond, above the 1,200 to the two ton. And then above the two ton, there is an occasional requirement in the UK. What does that do? What's, what, what, can, what sort of work? Things like building large pylon towers. Okay. Uh, a couple of years ago, they had a job in the northeast of Scotland where they were building a, a power line. It was two wooden poles per stanchion. Yeah. And they brought in a sky crane from an Ericsson sky crane, which lifted the whole thing and put it in the ground in holes that were pre-dug in the ground. And then that was their pylon built. It's an incredibly quick way of building a power line um, with very little damage, environmental impact, because you're not dragging these poles across the ground for miles and miles. Yeah, I can imagine. And that, that occasionally happens, but it's not often enough to merit owning one of these big aircraft. You'd need to hire them in, really. Um, that well, that one ton lift is really what the market is, which is why we chose the B three, and it's it's been really good. It's been reliable. Very low issues with it. It's quite it's easy to get parts and, and maintain in Europe. Um, with bells, it can be quite tricky sometimes getting the right parts, especially the older types now. So that's that's essentially why why we chose it really. Yeah, I know that that makes sense, and it's 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 a great aircraft. And in terms of like, I've also seen that you do firefighting. Yeah, you just talk me through a bit behind that. Well, the firefighting is um, it's always been around in the UK, some of our founding members were right involved right at the start of it in the UK when they, before they even um, had Bambi buckets available, yeah. they were sort of using ton bags of water and dropping them on fires and things like that. And that was a guy called Jock Simpson, who's our business development manager now. He's been in the industry for years. But uh, the firefighting, we didn't have the setup for it at the start. It's very much a, a kind of last minute thing. We often get them in the UK in the spring, mid to late spring, when you get a lot of growth um, in the grounds 
on the trees and then in the fields, forests, and it gets really hot. And we get these sort of three-week dry spells. Yeah. And everyone goes out into the countryside and has barbecues um, at that time of year. And we tend to get fires. We we bought the Bambi bucket system, uh, I think, in about 2016 or 17, without really any work for it to do. We'd had a couple of phone calls about fires, um, nothing very major, most, mostly from forest owners wondering if we had the capability to do it. Um, because the Bambi bucket's quite, a, it's about, a, I think it's about £15,000 investment, so it's quite a significant amount of money. And it basically sat for a year and a half and did nothing. And the financial directors was <laughs> asking what the hell we were bought this thing for. But eventually, in the last two years, we've had two quite bad years for fires. Actually, the last three years, with the big fire in Saddleworth Moor, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of fires and it seems to be getting worse. So that's where the firefight comes from. And essentially the Bambi bucket is a, it's a big bag that flies under the helicopter. Um, it has a valve in the bottom of it. And we drop it into a loch or a river and it picks up a ton of water at a time, a thousand meters, fly that to the fire and you press the release button in the cockpit and it opens the valve at the bottom and drops the water basically directly below the bucket onto the, onto the fire. Um, and depending on how close you are to the water source, you can you can do quite a lot of drops per day. I think we, we're regularly up towards 200 drops per day on fires, so sort of 200,000 litres. Yeah. In the UK, it doesn't tend to be, rarely is there sort of property at risk, like there is in the States and in Spain and where they get the real bad ones. It tends to be people's forests. Uh, if, a, if a fire goes through a forest, even if it just burns the bottom of the trees and doesn't actually set the trees on fire, it still reduces the value of the timber by a massive amount for the forest owner. So ah, to, right. yeah. And once it's into trees or on, on the hillside and it's very steep, the fire brigade don't really have the equipment to, to deal with it. Um, they, they have you know fire engines and pumps and, a, and there are little bits of wildfire fighting equipment, but nothing like we have a rod. It's quite underdeveloped in the UK, the, the wildfire. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, actually. So the market isn't really big enough to warrant a wildfire fighting aircraft or a wildfire fighting teams because it just hasn't happened or hasn't historically happened that often. Is that right? Not at the moment. Yeah, there's not really, there's no, I mean, in Canada and America, they have full, they have operators and frameworks and contracts just for firefighting. You know, that is what, we, we, you'll do and they guarantee hours you know they guarantee in Canada they'll guarantee 300 hours a year paid on firefighting which we just can't yeah. do over here you know it's impossible at the moment. which is a good thing because it it's, means the wildfires aren't that bad Yeah. having said that they are getting worse and you can see the impact climate change is having on them in the last um, sort of three or four years it's, they're starting to get worse getting bigger fires um, and at least sort of fires that are making the news every year you know whereas Previously, in the last ten years, that hardly ever happened. You know. Yeah. So, how does it work then? Does it does the fire brigade just call you up when there's a fire going on? Then. Yeah. So we'll we'll get a call from whoever. It depends on the kind of nature of the fire. It depends who calls us. The landowner can sometimes call us. It's another problem with the UK uh, sort of setup is that with a fire, the the bill for the helicopter has to be paid by the landowner, and that is you know covered by an insurance company. Obviously, oh, right. but we often have to wait for the insurance company to authorize the flying before we can start. So there's a bit of a there's a, always a bit of wasted time at the start of um, when they think that's incredible. So you literally have to wait for the insurer to approve you to go. Yeah, essentially, and sometimes they'll give us a, a cap on the hours we can fly. So they say, right, you've got twenty hours, and we'll fly. And if we've got to that, and the fire's still going. They'll have to give us an extension to keep going on that. And that's just the way it works. The fire brigade don't have the funding. They, they can't, they can recommend to the landowner that they call in a helicopter, but they can't tell them to or call us indirectly because they don't have the funding for it. 
um, unless it's on government land, in which case it would kind of come through the Forestry Commission or Scottish National Heritage channels, but on, on private land, which most of Scotland is, uh, it, you always have to wait for the insurers. And it's often the landowner that will decide that they want the helicopters in. Um, sometimes with a recommendation of the fire brigades, sometimes but without, you know. So are most of the landowners then aware of your services? Uh, yeah, we make them aware of it. Um, they all know, if, if or land man- landowners or land managers will know that we have firefighting capability. Um, we're also on a framework with the that the fire brigade have access to. So if we if they go to a place where the landowner has no idea about anything to do with helicopter firefighting, the fire brigade can go right. This is these are the operators who can do it. Pick one, and they'll they'll call up and and get us get us in to do that. It's always left too late in the UK as a result of this kind of disjointedness. They always leave it till the last minute to call the helicopter, and usually by then it's a massive event and it's. It, it takes a lot more time to try and to put it out. I think there is there is a bit of changing methodology, especially in the Forestry Commission. They're starting to change a bit. They've had a few rangers who've been out in Canada working out there and they've come back and, and they've got new ideas about how to do it because they have sort of rapid response teams in Canada. And if they see, if a report comes in of a fire, they'll fly a helicopter out to it straight away with firefighters in it and a Bambi bucket. And even if it's like a little campfire that's just got out of hand a little bit and it's only covering a few square meters they'll put it out because unchecked it will turn into a massive wildfire event you know yeah in this country it tends to be it tends to be massive before anyone thinks about calling a helicopter yeah that's crazy but that's really interesting something i didn't know and i'm sure most people don't know about i mean there's been been a bit more of it on the news recent in recent years um where they've had helicopters on fighting fire as well we fought a big one in just outside Dumfries uh, or Castle Douglas in the south of Scotland this year in a forest area. And that was uh, that had burned in three different directions. So we had three different landowners to, to deal with when we were looking at who was paying for the flying time. Wow. Which was uh, made it very, well, it didn't make it to, we have a, we have trackers on the aircraft, so we knew where it was at what time and who should be paying that, that bill. But um, it uh, can get a bit complicated. While we're on the topic of firefighting, it would probably be a good time to bring in your colleague Guy who is one of your colleagues and a pilot. For those of you listening, Guy has a really interesting story about firefighting in a situation quite close to home. So, um, Guy, nice to have you on. How are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, not too bad. So before we get into detail, can you just set the scene? Where exactly is Errol? Well, Errol is just a small village which is located between Perth and Dundee, uh, just on the M90. Uh, It's about 15 minutes drive from either direction and it's down near the River Tay and yeah, quite a small community. And uh, yeah, we've been living there for the last 11, 12 years. And what makes the area so special then, especially that Reed Bank, what makes that important? Well, it was um, planted oh, a long time ago. I can't remember exactly how long ago, but it was um, they were using it for uh, crofting, I believe, and it turned into a quite a special habitat for rare birds and various different parts of wildlife. And it was owned, I believe, by Errol Park. I think it still is, actually. And it's been there for years. Uh, and it's one of the largest reed beds in the UK. Oh, wow. Yeah. So can you take me back to the day that it happened and how did you first find out about it? Yeah, sure. It was, um, we'd actually been on a fire previous to this one down in, in Dumfries and it was quite a large fire, that one. It was, uh, there was a fire front of about three miles long and uh, it took us about, I think we were on site for three days fighting the fire down there. We'd finished 
um, a successful um, session down there and went back home. And then uh, the following day or the day after, two days afterwards, um, I, I I was looking outside my kitchen window actually and um, saw this smoke plume. And originally, I know there's a few farms down near the reeds and I thought, oh, it's just a farmer burning stuff and uh, nothing to be too worried about. You could just see it moving, uh, the the smoke along the bank of the river. I can't actually see the bank or that far. I'm still about 500 meters away from the bank itself. So, and it kind of dips down uh, from where I live. So I couldn't actually see exactly where it's coming from. And uh, it just looked large. So I, w- I went onto the village Facebook page to see if there was any comments made and uh, noticed that one of the local people had said the reed beds were on fire. So once I realized it was the reed, reed beds, I, I knew it was an important habitat for wildlife. So I first contacted RSPB. Um, because I know that they were kind of in charge of management side of things, but didn't have any joy with that. So we've got contact numbers for the fire brigades, um, control centers around Scotland. So I phoned them and had a discussion with them and mentioned to them that I had access to firefighting capabilities using a helicopter. Because I knew the access was pretty bad down there as well, because it's quite soft ground due to the river. Um, So they took it on board and didn't hear anything back for a couple of hours. And then uh, they phoned back and said, yes, we could do with with your help. So, uh, but during that time, I was getting my colleague Murray and um, asked him to drive over to where the helicopter's based because I know it takes, it took me about an hour and a half to get to where the helicopter is. So it was quicker just to have someone on standby down there just in case they phoned back. And sure enough, as soon as they phoned, I could get Murray airborne and he flew uh, the aircraft firstly up to Perth to get fuel uh, and then brought it over to Errol because Errol's got an airfield as well. So we swapped over and uh yeah i progressed to um start fighting the fire so between the 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 time that you called the fire brigade and the helicopter was flying what was going through your mind then there's a few there's a few things that are sort of going through your mind it's just like how serious is this and what what can be the worst kind of case scenarios i know there's a few houses located nearby the riverbank itself sort of through through your head is is there a threat to people's houses or actual life as well? And you, you get that master of urgency thinking, we need to get on with this but before it gets out of even more control. Um, and I knew that the rebeds, they they run all the way up the coastline towards Perth and Dundee for quite a few hundred acres worth. And I knew that it was a strong, a fairly breezy day as well. So the spread was happening quickly as well you could see the fire moving along the fire front fairly quickly you, you know you just get it into your head where you've got to make a quick assessment um so when the helicopter arrived i jumped in it and made a quick assessment of where how it was spreading and the priority areas really and the priority was at the head of the fire where the, in the direction it was spreading which was to the west towards perth so i focused on that area to try and stop the spread um, along the Tay Bank itself. You could see uh, the direction of the fire burn itself. You could see the direction of the smoke and the fire. 
and there's a small area where there's a river burn, um, which is a slight break in that. But if the fire had jumped across that gap, then I knew that there was many more hundreds of acres to the west of that. So I knew that was an area of priority to try and stop it from spreading even further west. And if you just talk me through in terms of the actual process of you fighting the fire, how does that? How did that work? Yeah, so um, what we try and do is we try and provide the fire commander who's in charge of the fire uh, with a with a radio. So he's got two way communications with myself in the helicopter, and uh, so yeah, the commander gives us an idea of how the spread is, and they might provide us with priority areas that we have to focus on. But most of the time they'll say, you know, you can see better than us and you attack the fire the best way you can see. But actually in terms of you flying, how does how does that work close by, didn't you? So you could fill up in the river. And- That's right. Yeah, it was really close by. So a couple of a couple of seconds hop over to the river and these buckets, they only take three or four seconds to fill with a thousand litres of water. Um, so th- we were very lucky that the fire was where it was um, because having it so close to the fire makes uh, makes it a lot more efficient to f- actually fight in the fire. So you get a bit of an adrenaline adrenaline rush uh, flying the helicopter. When you fly over the fire, you can feel the heat through the helicopter and you get all the smell of smoke and everything. And then you just sort of zone in onto the onto the areas that you're trying to fight. And the actual uh, water itself was at low tide as well. So I had to find a, a, a reasonable spot within the rivers so that the the bucket wouldn't bottom out on the on the sea seabed, uh, so that just to make sure I could get a full bucket of water. That's incredible. Because how many buckets was it overall? How like how long was the whole process of you fighting the fire? For, from start to finish, it was two hours. And within those two hours, I'm pretty sure it was 77 refills of the bucket. So around 77,000 litres of water went on that reed bed within two hours. Wow. You must have been exhausted when you finished it. Not too bad um, because it was really quick. Because the water was so close, we could get a lot of water on, onto the fire itself. It made it really quite efficient. And actually, it it did save the spread of the fire pretty quickly. I mean, from from when I arrived, when it was completely out of control, by the time I had finished, it was out. That's incredible. Pretty pretty effective tool. The damage now is it all been? Yeah, I, I, fl- I flew over it um, a couple of weeks ago, and you wouldn't tell that anything had happened. It was uh, it was an interesting little fire, and the chance of it happening on your doorstep are pretty slim. Yeah, I can imagine. I, that's like. A story that probably will never happen again, just so close to your house. Exactly. Yeah, but it was just—it was just good to be able to provide a service and help out the local commu- community where we can. And yeah, I became the local hero for a short period of time. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I'm—I'm I'm sure your hero status is well deserved. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story. That's no problem. There. All right. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. So, Murray, going back to Skyhook, what are the future plans for Skyhook, and what does it look like? Well, we're um, we're always moving forward. We're, we're looking to expand our our kind of utility work into some of the bigger, more long term contracts. Things like big scale power line projects. We want to increase the amount of survey work we're doing. We think that's a good market to get into. Moving into things like lidar and infrared um, stuff like that for power line patrolling or or geo surveys. 
right down to basic deer counting. Um, oh wow, is that a big market in the UK? In Scotland, it is. Yeah, we do we do quite a lot of hours each year deer counting. So you don't need any special equipment for that. You basically fly around with a cameraman in the back. He takes pictures of deer, but they have to manage the deer population. Um, and the only yeah. way to count them is fly around and, and count them with helicopters. But we want to increase that work. We're also looking to um, we we basically are an SPO operator at the moment. So we we operate under special operations. We don't have an AOC, so we don't transport members of the public. We only transport task specialists who are involved in the job we're doing. Um, so we're looking to get a, an AOC up and running next year so we can move into a bit of uh, charter work as well, um, which will be a sign of a bit of a sort of spin-off, really. We're not expecting it to do any great things for us. Um, it's more of a kind of support mechanism for our, our utility work. Some of the works that are coming in now require, you know, 20, 30 guys to be moved onto a work site every day in a twin engine aircraft, uh, right, yeah. which would need an AOC. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, uh, that's basically where we're going, just expanding. We, we've just um, moved our base. We were based at a sort of small hangar over uh, in a place called Balfron on the west coast of Scotland, um, or not quite on the west coast, near Loch Lomond, actually. We were there for two years, um, and that was fine. It was a hangar big enough for one squirrel and an office, perfect for us as we were getting started up. Um, but we've just moved into a much bigger premises at Fife Airport in Glenrothes, which is just to the north of Edinburgh. Yeah, so that's all the way on the other side. All the way well, on the other side, yeah, which isn't ideal, but it's very hard to find somewhere in Scotland that you can operate helicopters from. Um, there's not that not many airfields at all. We looked at we've looked at hundreds of sites across the country, and to get planning in place for a helicopter base um, with all the noise concerns and everything is a nightmare. So we're on the airfield here, which means we don't have to worry about that. And the premises that were offered to us were just so suitable and gives us so much room for expansion. We thought it's worth being a bit further away from our kind of core market area just to get this place set up. So we've got two two big hangars here in an office, um, which is going to make a huge difference, allow us to kind of get everything properly developed in. And we want to develop it as a bit of a, a base for people to come and visit as well. We're going to provide jetty warm fuel here to visiting helicopters. Ah, uh, right, yeah. And uh, as an alternative to Edinburgh Airport, really, which uh, isn't very helicopter friendly. Um, just because oh, right. you know, that's that's really interesting to know. So anyone who needs um who's flying a helicopter up in Scotland or near Edinburgh and wants better access to fuel should be getting contact with you then. Yeah, definitely. Um that would be that would be the thing to do. We've got Jetty One, uh, the airport have Avgas. It, we're literally about flying time point two from Edinburgh Airport and uh, we're just outside their zone. But uh, it, to get into Edinburgh, we don't you know, you you can avoid having to pay all the handling fees associated with that and booking in slots and things. It might not be so tricky this year because they're very quiet, obviously, but in a normal year, yeah. trying to get a helicopter into Edinburgh Airport is an absolute nightmare. So we're, we're trying going to try and market ourselves as a good alternative. Brilliant. If people want to get in contact with you or uh, Skyhook, um, what's the best way of them doing this? So probably the best way is just to jump on our website, which is www.skyhookhelicopters.co.uk. All the contact details are on there. Yeah, just jump on the website, give the office a call, just get in touch through that. That'd be the best way. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Murray. This, is, this has been really interesting um, and really opened my eyes to kind of the, the world of heli lifting in the UK. I didn't realize it was such a big thing. So um, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, no worries. It's been great to be on. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to another Niche Aviation podcast. If you're enjoying the latest series or have any comments, then please let me know. My contact details are in the show notes below.
Next week's podcast is on aviation software. I'll be speaking to David Hunkin at Centric. Until then, have a great week.